the camaraderie of experiences of alcohol can often unlock actually good positive discussions and and potentially create friendship it can be it can be a lubricant towards positive social engagement but it is absolutely never an excuse for violence for discrimination for for you know anything that is actually causing another person around you harm never This is what we do, a show about how we, you and me, can have a positive impact on the world, live with integrity and embrace the complex questions of our time without losing neither ourselves, our minds, nor our hope in the process. My name is Lucy Kamara and I'm your host. Let's begin. Hi everyone and welcome back to a new episode of What We Do. I'm Lucy Kamara, your host and creator of this space. In this podcast, we explore how our actions, choices and lifestyles give us the daily opportunity to live the questions of our time. By living the question, I mean that instead of trying to answer these big questions about climate change, racial and gender injustice and other human problematics, We embraced them and respond to them through our daily lives. The German poet Rainer Maria Rilke first came up with the idea of living the question. And I first encountered it on my all-time favorite podcast, On Being with Krista Tippett. You can find some resources about it in the show notes. On this podcast, I interview wonderful people from around the world who may not have definite answers, but who embody refreshing responses to these big questions. This week, I had the pleasure of talking to Nathan Ratapu, the owner of Riranga Wines, a wine and bookshop in Paris, France. Nathan, who is of Maori origin from New Zealand, explores decolonial reflections and the intersection of wine, labour, agriculture, indigenous rights and feminism. Please note that this conversation is in English, but as I am a native French speaker and Nathan is fluent in French, You may hear a mix of languages sometimes, which I like to call Franglish. For a transcript of this conversation, visit my website at www.lucyoutthere.com. You can find a link in the show notes. In this conversation, we dive deep into Nathan's background, his childhood in New Zealand, and his life dedication to exploring questions of race and decolonization. We discuss discrimination in the wine industry, the potential of wine as a force for good, and the need for more diversity and representation in the industry. Please be aware that we touch on sensitive topics such as sexual assault. If you need to take care of yourself and skip that portion of the conversation, I fully understand. It comes up in the last quarter of the episode. Now, without further ado, this is my conversation with Nathan Ratapu. You were just telling me that you had um, um, an event at the store. 
Yes. So we organize events with with different authors uh, on a regular basis, and it's really our way to speak to both sides of the project, um, to the wine side, in the fact that we're inviting people into the space, offering them a chance to come into a wine shop, which depending on, uh, you know, depending on their background, their interests may not be something that they're even accustomed to. And so we had an event for um, Frank Lau for his new book, Die Connaison Nue. Um, and it was fantastic because, you know, his, his Maison Edition, his, his publishing house reached out to us to do the event. Um, and Who's he, he published has, by? he's published by JC Latt, um, yeah. which is a division of Hachette mm. and it's a quite, a, quite a big publishing house. Um, I was actually really surprised when we, when they reached out that it was them that was publishing the book. Um, just because, I mean, it's a topic that obviously is is still extremely controversial in France. Um, but the approach of the book, I think, is kind of representative of the fact that, you know, he wants to take this project that's been primarily a social media account up until this point, um, kind of to a more broader public. Um, the book really, it's a, it's a, it's a quite a substantial book and it examines his own life, you know, his own history and his family's history of uh, enduring racism uh, in France. He is a first-generation immigrant. Um, and so his experience trying to reconcile the reality of growing up in France, growing up in a situation in which uh, his parents are Laotian and they spoke uh, a form of, of Chinese Laotian at home, but he never picked it up. He always spoke French. He always saw himself as French until the moment in time in school that he was clearly identified by his friends as not being so. Um, and, you know, and examining the ways in which you create these hierarchies um, and, and sort of uh, boundaries of shame with respect to your racial origin in a place like France, where assimilation is so much the advocated game but is absolutely never the reality. Um, and so it was really in, incredible to have Frank there to talk about the, the subject because we also, it was the first event that we'd had with, with a French author of Asian racial origins at the shop. Um, and it's a community that, you know, I, oh, we would love to have also more events with and have more conversations with examining a lot of these questions of decolonization, but also, a number of intersecting questions in terms of feminism, in terms of LGBTQ identity, um, and the ways in which you know those interact with that community um, in France. And so it was really amazing to have a number of people who were there, um, who have created their own associations, their own their own organizations, who were meeting for the first time uh, in many cases in the space. Um, around Frank's book and being like, you, like, oh my gosh, you know, you're doing this amazing thing over here. Like you really should come and talk to our team who's doing this stuff over here. Um, you know, we're having like, we have these sort of dinners where we talk about our experiences dealing with these kinds of things, how we're talking about this to our kids or to our students or to our coworkers. Um, and it was a really just uh, extremely affirming space. And Frank is a very... Um, I mean, he was anonymous for a really long time and he's a very quiet person, but he had such a sort of in intimate touch with every single person who wanted to talk to him about the book and their own experiences. 
So it was, I mean, when I went back to the Cav yesterday, it was, you feel the vibration of the amount of, the amount of love, the amount of emotion, obviously the amount of trauma that was shared and, uh, and sort of put into examination in, in that space, but the ways in which community can really help to um, assuage those problems and to really, to really help confront them. That's, that's so amazing to hear and so powerful. Um, and I, I, I quite love, this is not usually how I start uh, my conversations and my podcasts. And, you know, it's usually I, I try to have like, I have a more basic approach of like, introduce yourself. What do you do? Where are you from? Whatever. But I, I quite like actually that we started with this um, and to see, because I would love to, coming from like from this event, from this uh, recalling, especially that it was, it's so fresh, it was two days ago. Mm -hmm. If you could talk a little bit about how this um, event came about, like how it resonated with you and your story, how it found its um, purpose in your store, because I feel like this from, from the little I know of you and of your store, Renanga Wines, um, it sounds like this is the vision um, for the store. So could you, um, from this standpoint, uh, introduce uh, our listeners to, to what you do and, and how this came about? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, Frank's book, and I don't know if I said the name of it, uh, but it's called Decolonisons Nous, or Decolonize Ourselves. And when um, the publishing house first reached out about it, you know, I've been following the account for a while because this question of, of decolonizing ourselves has always been something that has been important to myself as someone of Maori origin. Um, and someone of Maori origin who has led a life that's been very uh, disconnected in some ways to my place of origin, the place of origin of, of, of my people. Um, I was born in the United States. I grew up a good amount of my adolescence and my teenage years in New Zealand, Aotearoa, uh, but then lived in the United States for another 10 years and then have been in France for four years. And, you know, growing up, I saw myself as Maori, but I saw myself as Maori with an asterisk, right? I saw myself as Maori uh, who didn't want to be like other Maori uh, and who wanted to get away from New Zealand Aotearoa when I was young to go do something else. What does, um, that, what, what does that mean? And what did that look like in your mind? Like what in your mind growing up was the idea of this is a Maori man and I'm not that. And what, what is it that you were kind of, you wanted to get away from if you don't mind me asking? No, it's totally okay. I think it's a shared kind of shame situation between my father and I, and it's something that we both have been really working through for a long time. But my father, when he was 18, he left, uh, he left Tairafiti, our like hometown uh for the united states and he he left um and didn't come back until he brought us back as, as kids and that was about 15 years um and he really left with this idea that 
oh, I have this chance to get out of the muck. You know, I have a chance to get out of this situation in which um, you internalize this notion that, oh, we as Maori are just like not worth anything. You know, uh, the system is so much to do with why Maori have so few economic and social uh, advantages in New Zealand, Aotearoa, and particularly for my father in the 1980s, um, when really, you know, there was no, no value um, on the national level to being Maori, to speaking Maori, to having this, this, having these cultural artifacts, having this cultural knowledge of our own country. Um, and so often, you know, as, as is the case with many indigenous people uh, and, and, and colonized countries, you know, the statistics were such that we did so much, so much worse in schools. We had, had such uh, so few job opportunities. Um, we were seen with these, you know, with these particular lenses of, oh, we're lazy. Oh, we're not good workers. Um, oh, we're unhealthy. Um, and so as a result, you know, when he got to the United States and he was not seen in that same way because people did not know who Maori people were, and particularly at that time period, he saw this chance to, oh, completely transform himself. And, and where Maori was something that would be a bit of a token, but at the same time, not something held against him. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, you know, uh, a generation later, um, I grew up in a different New Zealand Aotearoa um, at, at a time where effectively Maori culture had begun to see um, a cultural renaissance in, in the nation and that there were more and more people learning the language. Uh, there was more uh, cultural mobility for Maori people and also a sense of real pride that was coming back amongst, um, amongst Maori people in terms of really putting forward the fact that we were Maori um, and creating Maori political movements. And I was involved in a lot of this. I, I really wanted to learn about this when I was young. I mean, my, my parents encouraged me to learn Te Reo Maori and to really immerse myself in these things. Um, Do you speak but because English? I grew up, so I speak some of it. Um, you know, it's also a point of real shame for me. Like I, I tried to start, I had to learn it when I was in school and at that time too, uh, which is not that long ago, but a lot of things have changed in the last 15 years. But, you know, I, you could learn it, but it was very, again, it was very sort of uh, tokenized, you know, it was like, oh, here's a language you can learn amongst five other languages at school. And it doesn't matter that this is perhaps the more pertinent language, because this is the language of the indigenous people of this country um sort of just like oh you will take this or if you're interested um and at that time too i mean there we would see a sprinkling of the language in in popular culture mm. um but you didn't but grow it, up speaking it i didn't grow up speaking yeah. it no and it was the same thing and it's a story that's very similar with for, with the story that frank tells in in his book you know you we my my father didn't speak it my father didn't grow up speaking it um my grandmother uh was fluent in it, but this wasn't something we knew until I was maybe 15. My dad had no idea that his own mother was fluent in Te Reo Māori because she refused to speak it to him Mm. uh, because she wanted him to become fully assimilated in New Zealand culture, which was ostensibly white culture, which was white European culture. That's a pretty... um 
relatable story, I think, for a lot of immigrant kids, kids of immigrant and and of either immigrant or indigenous people um, with the, this kind of power dynamic with another language, another colonized um, or a, a language of power. Um, I know my, my mother has the same, had this almost the same word for word. She, she realized that her, my mother's father was Chinese, um, but in the, in French, the French Caribbean mm-hmm. um, and until her forties, I I think I remember when my mother realized that her dad was fluent in Chinese. <laughs> um, oh wow! Yeah. Um. So it's it's I I always find it funny how like no matter if it's on the other like literally the further side of the planet, which is New Zealand, Aotearoa, and you know French Guiana, or or you know north of Sweden, Sami population, it's. There's so many similar stories and parallel yeah. stories. I mean, this is this is the story of colonialism. Period. Right? It's the it's the suppression. It's the repression of a cultural identity, of history, of you know what we call in Tereo Maori Taonga. You know these these gifts of your people, right? And and the gift of, of, of language, you know, which is, is such a key anchoring point for so many people with their cultural identity and with the story of the past. Um, and so, you know, it, it, if you don't have that, that link, it can really, you know, it, it can really unroot you. Um, and so, you know, when I moved away from New Zealand, Aotearoa, when I was, when I was going to university, um, you know, not having actually that link to language and obviously not having other Maori people around me um, really kind of led me to sort of move away in a sense. It, it was not a, it wasn't a, a disinterest because it always is a part of me, but it was very easy to move into circles in which I would not be necessarily perceived as Maori um, and to, you know, on a, on a, a deeper level, buy into that shame, you know, buy into that colonialist shame of, well, you know, it's a thing, but I don't have to make it so much of a thing of my personality if I if, if it makes other people uncomfortable. Thinking about something else that Frank talks about in the book and uh, which is sort of these hierarchies of, of racial, racial privilege and, um, and the ways in which colonization really also tries to pit different um, different colonized people against one another to create this notion of, well, you all want to be us, you know, the civilized people, the, the colon, mm-hmm. we will never be. But if we are the image of the ideal, then you amongst yourself can have these battles of, of cultural difference and, and things like that. Um, and that will allow us, you know, that allows the, the white dominant culture to remain, uh, you know, elevated and, and away from the fray. Um, and that, that's, you know, that's still a problem within Aotearoa today. You know, my parents, um, and this kind of is also a link to bigger question about how the wine shop came about and how I also decided to really open Riringa with this vision of being a, a distinctly decolonist project and also a project that is just trying to address the multiplicity of social issues that are interconnected with, um, with agriculture and winemaking. 
But in when I grew up, um, most of my dad's family were agricultural laborers, and they worked on the vines, uh, and they worked, you know, in horticulture all year round, and they were deeply exploited. Um, you know, they were just exploited by the agricultural industry who saw them as basically cattle and, and saw them as people who there was no need to have any form of respect with respect with uh, contracts uh, or with even just uh, proper labor conditions. And eventually uh, laws changed to ostensibly, you know, protect Maori laborers and protect uh, contractual labor in, in the agricultural industry, but only for New Zealanders. And, and also so, with, the, with the help of a certain woman, if I'm yes, not mistaken. Totally, with the help of, of Jacinda Ardern and help of, um, oh, was that who you're thinking about or who you're talking about? I was thinking about your grandmother. <laughs> oh, my grandmother as well, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, my grandmother was, we... We ended up actually moving back to my hometown of Tarafiti because my grandmother ran basically as an intermediary between, uh, you know, these these companies and sensibly her family and friends. And she said, you know, we need some form of structure here to make sure that people are actually getting paid and that there's even a record of the label that, ever that you're doing so that you can get benefits and compensation and this labor can actually be traced. Um but it was extremely overwhelming for her and it put her in a, in a real space of precarity um, because these are things that should be handled by actual, you know, administrative bodies or of course, by the people themselves who are running these businesses and making the money off the bodies of, you know, indigenous people. Um, Did she ever get so recognition for her she work? She never got recognition for her work. No. Is she, no. Is she alive or did she? No, she passed away. Um, and you know, it's, um, it's a really, it's a really tragic story of, of also pure racism as well. She had a heart condition and she had a, a pacemaker and, uh, when she was just 60 and she was, I mean, apart from the, you know, the pacemaker, she was in actually very good health and she had started to, she had left working in the fields and she started doing other things with her life. And one day she had, she sensed that there was something wrong with her pacemaker. Um, she was having heart palpitations. She went to the hospital um, and the hospital told her flat out, right, uh, you're making this up. Like, we think that you're fine. Um, they didn't do any tests on her. Um, and there's, you know, there's records of this. She came in, she I to explain that, you know, she was like, I'm feeling something weird. And they just took for granted that she was this older Maori woman who didn't, under, didn't understand science, didn't understand her own health. So they sent her away. She came back a second time about three or four hours later. And she was really saying like, something is wrong. Like either this machine is not working or something's going on with myself. Um, they tested the machine. They said, no, you're fine. And again, refused to believe that she was actually experiencing any of the symptoms that she was experiencing. And they told her just to go home. And then she, uh, she passed out. She went into shock. And by the time that she got to the hospital, she was, uh, she passed away. Um, and, you know, my, my father tried to, he was so, so deeply angry. And, you know, he 
trying to understand this forever. And the hospital basically then turned around and said, oh, well, you know, I mean, Maori women of her age, you know, with heart conditions, it's, it's just, it's, it's more likely that she's not going to survive a heart attack or things like that. And that, and that it was, was that. preventable. Yeah. I'm so sorry. It was totally preventable. And uh, no, it's, I mean, but this is, you know, this, it, this is, this is the horrible things that are still, that are still anchored. And it's, you know, obviously this is what happens to, to so many women of color who are just, they're not around the world, right. Who are in, in situations in which, um, white doctors don't believe that, that they're experiencing pain and, and, um, and don't understand it. And, you know, and these are often the intersectional realities too, for when we're talking about maternity, when we're talking about, you know, women's health um, crises in general. I've been very touched by the story of Nathan's grandmother and as soon as I heard about her and her, her work and her story, I've been wanting to give her some of the recognition she absolutely deserves. And this is why, if you subscribe to this podcast, you will find in your feed tomorrow a special bonus episode dedicated to Nathan's grandmother, Tiffany Walker. So please make sure you don't miss this and you keep her in your mind, her and all of the indigenous women and women of color who have worked relentlessly to care for their community and who have disappeared due to racism, sexism, negligence without their names and their work being given the light it should have. So for Tefetu and all the women that fought with her through time and space, please hold her story in your mind and listen to the bonus episode that's coming tomorrow. You know, the legacy of my grandmother on, on what she, she did to really fight for the rights of agricultural laborers um, you know, I wish I could say that I'd really lived on in, in a way. And, and I think that in a sense for Maori people, there was this moment, um, you know, where contracts were better respected, um, the minimum wage was lifted, and, you know, that was put in line with, with agricultural labor uh, because there was also a, a lower wage, of course, for agricultural labor than there was for um, other forms of commercial labor. But then, you know, uh, basically farmers, uh, large agriculture industries just started bringing over um, agricultural laborers coming from other parts of the Pacific, uh, whose home countries had lower um, minimum wages that could be respected when they came over here. Obviously, there was there was there's always that com- that that conversation, you know, Frank talks about it as well, the grateful minority versus, mm-hmm. you know, the the marginalized people who start to have some simulacrum of of power or agency were then not considered to be grateful of what they have and so then it just becomes now a situation in which Maori people are put into direct uh competition with 
people who are our literal brethren, you know, who are our Polynesian brothers and sisters in other places who we should be fighting together with against colonization and are just now being, you know, who are, are now being seen by plenty of Maori people in an, in an unfortunate but like understandable way as just yeah. like people who are beating them to basically making a buck, you know? Yeah. When I went to university, I I really wanted to study political science, um, either through potentially becoming a journalist at the other end of it, or in some ways, you know, trying to be politically active in my community, a community organizer or working in politics. Um, and when I was still in Tarafiti, you know, I got involved with the Maori Party, which is now called Te Pati Maori. Um, sort of at its nascent, nascent stage. Um, and it was a sort of Maori political movement that was trying to have um, representation in parliament uh, for Maori people, but with Maori people whose specific agenda was addressing uh, decolonization and elevating Maori concerns. I wanted to understand also what were the origins of so many of these conflicts outside of just questions of, um, of racism, right? Like what are the economic factors that reinforce these kinds of um, these forms of racism that exist in the United States, but also obviously everywhere. Um, and what are also the, the social factors that are involved in these things? I became interested in wine in a context in which it actually seems like a form of uh, social mobility in a way, right? I mean, oftentimes wine um, and the things that come with wine, right? The social occasions that come with wine, the environments in which you can consume wine, learn about wine, offer you a form of, of, of certain social access, Um you know, I, I was desperate for a new form of education after getting tired with the work that I was doing on a different, different career. And I fell in love with the storytelling aspect of wine. You know, there was an aspect of, of, of waiata, of, of mm -hmm. kōrero, of, of story, of speech um, that is present in, in winemaking and, and in, in wine sales that's very seductive. And, you know, it's always this question of, how can we put a little bit of sweetness into the medicine of getting people to understand questions of, of privilege and, and racism and, and discrimination? I started thinking about, about wine through uh, these classes that I started taking and then, and then eventually winemakers that I was meeting um, through this lens of actual storytelling and through this lens of the intersection of so many of the questions that were really important to me about history about society about tradition um about food systems um and also questions of aesthetic pleasure right um and how how we can create environments in which potentially complex questions can be rendered a little bit more um easy to understand or to discuss mm -hmm. um and so 
you know, I, 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 I just became really seduced by this and I started to, to read more about it. I started to go visit more of these people. And eventually, you know, I found my way to, to natural wine, uh, which is the you know, particular kind of, kind of wine and, the, and, and that I sell and that I really spend my time around um, because it's to kind of sort of explain it very quickly and briefly um, for people who've never had natural wine or still have questions about it. The idea with natural wine is, is that it's, um, of course, dealing with agriculture and viticulture that is you know, either organic or um, something that is really respecting the earth for the earth's sake. Um, and then in the cellar, it's allowing all of that organic material that you have, you know, really carefully um, brought into existence to express itself in the most authentic and transparent way possible. Um, wine, of course, doesn't make itself. There is still human hands that are there, but the idea is to intervene as little as possible and to let things like the yeast that's in the air naturally ferment the wine um, to let the evolution of the wine continue as it, as it should. Um, and then to eventually do as little as possible when you're putting the wine into bottle to really let that, that transformation also become a part of the wine story. Um, and as a result, you know, it, it's, it's a product that is very much the, the sum of everything that's happened in the year, the history of this place, the history of these finds themselves, and also the person, the people uh, who are part of that story, people who actually shepherded, that, uh, shepherded those finds and those grapes to completion in the wine. And the people who make up the culture surrounding that place as well, who have a big influence on why those vines are planted, how that earth was taken care of, and and the, the things that people look for in those flavor profiles that are in the resulting wine. I thought, wow, I mean, this is this product really is 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 a story. So much of the circumstances of a place and 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 of the beauty and of the trauma of things that are happening and, and the people who are, are present for that. And I really wanted to jump into that space and, and learn how I could also help tell those stories to people and make the consumption of something that had really had, you know, adverse effects on my family mean something else or have or have a have a greater capacity to mean something else to other people it's beautiful it almost makes me feel like like I mean I've been around natural wine for years and drinking it and loving it because I've worked in hospitality I worked in bars and I worked in natural wine bars and I've never heard anyone actually talk about it that way it almost makes me think of it as a, a poem like it's it's the the a bottle itself can be it's a it's a work of poetry in some ways there's a lot of metaphors it's a lot of yeah cultural significance it's it's beautiful it's i mean it 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 can be a really beautiful thing you know and it's um and and i think that with time as i got more and more interested in natural wine the thing that then ended up happening and the, and the work that I then had to actually do on myself as I got 
more and as I started working in, in natural wine and eventually, you know, when I moved to, to France uh, four years ago with my partner, I had to realize that it's very easy to become almost entirely fixed on that beauty, right? And to, in some ways, sublimate the, the politics of that, that are, are in, inherent to the poetry inherited to that narrative into aesthetics. And then in some ways dismiss it, dismiss the politics as being a, a distracting force mm-hmm. to being able to appreciate the beauty. I I was very um, interested when I heard you, I heard you talk about that um, on our common friend Mathilde's podcast, um, mm-hmm. where you were saying, you were talking about, I think the, um was it was there was there a trial with an Italian winemaker maybe with the very cheap prices and it turned out like the the manpower that had been behind yeah. this beautiful great cheap bottles had been um um abusive um and I, I was I again like there's very few people who talk about this so Oh, absolutely. I mean, like that was a very, I, I would hesitate to call it like a, a well-publicized story because sadly, I mean, it's really some certain circles in which these things are talked about. They're not brought to a wider public, but yeah, that was a perfect example of someone who um, really identified as this like figure of natural wine, a very sort of like a quirky, exciting person who had, you know, these really fun labels and their wines were these sort of neo-fluorescent colors. And they were also a really accessible price point, which is a, you know, démarche that is extremely important as well mm-hmm. um, to rendering something like natural wine accessible to mm-hmm. a broader public and getting people to think about the questions proposed by natural wine is, is, is price accessibility. But so, you know, this, this story was extremely seductive until we realized that, oh, when you have 80 hectares of vines, um, how, and your prices are so, so low, and supposedly all of your grapes are harvested by hand, in which case they were, but hands that were very poorly paid, um, and, you know, it, it, it forces you to think about what is part of this yeah yeah who are the whose are the lives that are impacted by who's not getting paid (laughs) there like where is the money not going actually um but and that's that's very much I mean that's always the tension of um intersectional sustainability uh which is a concept that I'm I'm really um uh passionate about the because it it demands balance always, you know, because you want, you don't want these stories and this beautiful product and, and, you know, the fruit of this labor to become a luxury item. Um, but at the same time, you want people to be paid fairly because that's the, that's just the, the system we're working with. It's capitalism. So there's, there's um, offer and demand and, you know, um, but I'm, yeah, I'm really interested in how we can respect both the soil, what comes out of it, the communities around it, the workers, 
the consumers in a you know a beautiful positive way and what are the compromises that are that are that have to be made um for it to be sustainable for it to last longer for it to 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 touch as many lives as possible and i i think that's also what i'm um really trying to explore with this podcast and this project and with the people i talk to because you know, with your background, your story, what you do, the products you work with, but also just the idea of having a business and and also having this too, like having a wine store and a radical bookstore, because it is a radical bookstore, I guess, and how all of this okay. um, element can live interconnected and how just the proximity of these stories highlight the inter- interconnection there uh, I think it's fascinating and I would love to hear your uh, experience and, and challenges but also the opportunities you've been seeing and, and how it's been working out I mean you've explained the mission so beautifully like I really could not explain it myself like that is that is exactly the kind of uh, the, the purpose of Rerenga and its mission is really this this intersectional sustainability in which you are addressing all of the stakeholders who are present and their their various needs and the differences there at once. And you're trying to be, you're trying to recognize the that all of those people are interconnected, even if they don't seem like they're all in the same situation, right? The, the question of the people who are being exploited um, in the labor environment the questions of the people who um, are consuming products that come from an earth that has been polluted and has been mistreated. Um, and then the consumers who are also uh, taking part in this artisanal product that comes from all of that care, that attentivity, um, that, you know, the, uh, that well-meaning sort of action um, who are those people and how do we make sure that those people represent the diversity of the people who made the product, you know, or the diversity that is missing in that production process. Um, and it's, those two things are, are necessary at the same time. Um, I think that for me, when I, when I was thinking about opening the shop, this was a, this is a very sort of, uh, palpable conversation in the natural wine space in the United States right now, um, where this question of um, how do how do we decolonize wine and and how do we decolonize wine not only from the question of how do we um, ensure you know safe labor conditions for the people who are working the fields and who are, you know, oftentimes migrant laborers coming into situations of precarity to pick grapes. Um, but also how do we decolonize the space of who is making wine, you know, who has been excluded from the means of production of wine for, for generations and generations. Um, and also in terms of who is, who's representing that wine on the other side of things, who has access to, to, being a sommelier to being a cadiz and you know all of these things have led to incredible projects um you know wine collectives that are um extremely radical in their in in having manifestos about how they're going to treat they're going to treat everyone who's involved in the project and 
um, and talking about going back to working with polyculture and working with indigenous grapes um, and, and really resisting all forms of compromise with uh, big agro and, and with uh, chemical companies. And all of that I thought was really, really great. But my biggest issue with it was that the product at the end of it uh, was often $50. Um, and, uh, so, you know, you go as a consumer, I mean, at that price point, frankly, the, a large majority of, of people who go into a wine shop, um, are going to go, Oh, well, I'm, I'm really excited by this story that you're telling me about all of this. This is exactly what the kinds of things, if you are someone who is, you know, like us and listeners who are who are really interested in these mm -hmm. questions of, of sustainability and, and and intersectionality, I mean, I want to support. I don't have the money for that, you know. So, oh, that sucks. I can't actually be, afford to be involved in these things that are extremely interesting to me. So, I guess I'm just going to buy, you know, my fifteen dollar, you know, bottle of whatever wine. Um. And the, and the reality is, is that it's hard to also, I mean, the means of production are the means of production, right? Are, are to thinking about all these questions and really moving into these spaces in which, and in, in our current reality, right? Where we're, for the most part, operating independently to any kind of government subsidies or wider forces that could potentially help us to bring these costs down and render these things more accessible. Mm -hmm you know, we're acting as the exception, right? We're, we're choosing to put in this effort and things. And we, you know, you, you want to tell people that their labor is worth something. How do we decolonize wine? How do we decolonize wine? Decolonize wine, decolonize wine, decolonize wine, decolonize wine. Again, environmentalism, sustainability uh, becomes a value, you know, becomes a, a value of the enlightened, the rich, and it enters into this sort of like rhetoric, again, that is extremely, uh, you know, extremely hier hierarchical and extremely colonialist. Um, and so in thinking about opening my shop, I said, there's there has to be a way in which the shop itself addresses that that problematic right um i am a natural wine shop right i'm not a, a generalist store um but and i mean i and i i want to try to find things that are going to be at price point I, I, you know that represent all of the you know the important questions and values that we've talked about um and that are also as experiences as poetic and beautiful as 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 anything else, um, but that can be at an entry level price point. Now, mind you, that entry level price point, when you put in all of those factors, is always going to be higher than gross industrial farming. Um, but I said, okay, if we can't, 
truly if there's if you know if we want to create a space where people feel comfortable at least having the questions and the and 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 addressing okay i'm used to going to a supermarket and this bottle of wine is five euros and that does me fine why should i spend a bit more money to invest in these in 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 this thing i said okay well i could just talk to you about why i think it's good but why not also have the voices of so many people who are addressing these questions and are really interrogating the ways in which they are relevant to your life, even outside of just your choice about a wine bottle. Right. And, and so there's that aspect, right. A a direct way of, of addressing and interrogating those questions through different lenses that other people might be able to understand based on their backgrounds, what they do, what they're interested in. Um, But there's also a question of representation, Right. And so for me, that that is an extraordinarily important part of any commercial uh, business is just to say that you as the consumer uh, want to feel represented in the space that you're walking into. Right. And in the products that you are consuming and wine is Ian and, and actual wine is too an extraordinarily white male place, you know, uh, and for the most part, like heterosexual space. Um, And, you know, the question that so many white people ask me is, well, oh, well, how, what does that, what does that matter? How does that taste different in the wine? You know, what, what, what concern is it to a person of color that they're drinking a bottle of wine made by a white person? You know what I mean? They're going to drink it with their friends and their own environment and their own circumstance. You know, and this is, this is the, Presentation, right? This is this yeah. the thing is, is that you want the, the reason why there is a reason why most of this wine is made by white people. It's not just because of some of uh, that's just how it is. It's not just it's, because people of color are not interested in wine. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But this is what gets this this is this is the insane thing that ends up just like polluting people's brains with time in a, in a, in a post-colonialist space is this notion that as we get further distance from the origin of evil, you know, from the actual colonialization itself or from the, you know, enslavement of people, we just start ingraining these ideas that, Oh yeah. You know, uh, people of color just don't drink wine, you know, or people of color, they, they just aren't interested in this kind of literature mm. or they're just not interested in, they don't have the palate for it, you know? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right. Or like, and it's David coming to the situation of like, oh yeah, you know, organics, like so impossible to open an organic store and then the bon mieux because they won't want to buy those products. And you're just like, how are you not putting yeah. these, these things together? Because in some cases it's, it is actually quite simple. Um, but, you know, in this situation, it's just like being, a, a, having the means to start a project uh, of wine is already extraordinarily difficult. And if you are not coming from someone who has, who's coming, coming from a landowner um, or coming from someone who has the economic advantage to be able to take time to go to a school for winemaking, um, it's, it's a, it's, it's privilege, you know, and it's, and it's privilege that does not necessarily mean that these people are, you know, cannot be sort of honest, like, uh paysan in the sense we all have uh, we all have our privileges the the most honest paysan is still i mean there's 
privilege doesn't add or remove value in itself. Exactly. And so, you know, I, I tell people that like, it's, it's an extraordinarily difficult uh, space to enter into because, you know, winemaking is, is still very much connected to this notion of tradition in France. And those questions are so deeply connected to the questions of racism and who has the right to use our land and to, to build something that represents France uh, that could be sold in the internal, but also in the international marketplace. And so, you know, it will be, unless we are actually drawing attention to those questions of saying, okay, well, why aren't there more and more people of color in a, in an, in an, in an already diverse country like France, but an increasingly diverse country like France, and in a country in which the, uh, the consumers of wine and natural wine uh, are becoming increasingly more and more diverse, why are we not seeing that diversity happening in, uh, in winemaking schools, uh, in agricultural programs, in the people who are leaving urban spaces to go uh, buy land and start making wine? Why are we not seeing that? I mean, why are we not seeing more women doing it, period? You know, why are we not seeing queer Aren't people moving to... Aren't we seeing more women? At, at least I feel like, or maybe it's just in my circles and my bubbles, but I feel like there are more vigneron and and female winemaker at least like all white as i as far as i know but mm-hmm. um who've who've become like like we see we slowly start to see more of them um but also actually i was i sorry i i cut you off but also i would love to um know if you have any any names people domain that you would like to to shine a light on and for people to know more about absolutely i mean just to just to close the point on 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 why uh on your question about more and more vigneron yes i think that we are definitely there are definitely more and more uh female winemakers in the wine space uh now than there were you know five ten years ago i mean it, it is becoming uh, at least from a gender point of view, uh, more diverse. But I would say that, you know, it's not just uh, uh, that there are more women who are interested in making wine now and then they're going to these schools. It's also that it's still an extraordinarily difficult experience for a woman to enter into the wine industry. Mm-hmm. I um, was in the region of Corbière this past weekend and I went to go visit two women, um, Nina and Lise, who have a domain called La Revanche. Um, who good name. just start yeah exactly and so they Revenge just started <laughs> oh yes sorry um, <laughs> yeah and so they are really you know they have been they have uh, edited a, um, a news a sort of not another an actual uh, newspaper that comes out four times a year in their region specifically about questions of um, social injustice uh, sexism, racism, conjugal violence. Uh, they've been really been trying to get people in 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 the region of Corbière to talk about these questions for a long time. And then they, through their own interest, decided to start making wine. And you know, they they were like, for us, we knew there would be difficulties in things that we faced 
being women, you know, in, in the wine industry, but we still sort of thought, oh, I mean, in the natural wine space amongst our friends, you know, things like that, like, it'll be much easier. You know, it's 20, when they started last year, you know, like it's 2022. And when I talked to them, they were just like, it is such a struggle mm-hmm. to even convince uh, people to give them land to use. Mm-hmm. You know, the belief that they're even capable of, of taking care of the earth, of doing, uh, of cutting the vines, of doing uh, tayage or pruning, um, of handling machinery. You know, the people won't sell things to them, you know, or the way in which that they, that people talk to them about their wine at, uh, at wine fairs. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's an onslaught of, of discrimination and disbelief that, you know, can be really, really disheartening. And so I think that um, while there may be systems in place now to encourage more women to enter into the wine industry, when you are faced, and this is the same thing for for people of color who try to enter into so many different things as well. When you are, you may, we may now have systems that claim to be uh, blind to, to either racial difference or gender difference or sexual orientation difference that allow you to go to certain schools if you have, again, have been had certain privileges to allow you to get to those places. But then once you're in the actual working environment, you know, yeah. uh, where those, those guardrails to help you kind of evade discrimination, get you into the position where you have a job or you are at a business, it's a constant you struggle. are still, it's still a constant struggle. You know what I mean? And that can really be that can lead so many people to say it's not worth it like i don't mm-hmm. i don't want to be the, the i don't want to be the token for a really long time it's not my responsibility to open the door for all these other people and keep going through it and also for people like nina and Lise who are like we're by no means the first woman to deal with this situation the fact that after seeing so many other women making wine that we're still in this situation now um is you know they're they're they want to do it this is this is the kind of work that they have been engaged with in a long time they're not they're not ignorant to the situation but i can understand it's really really disheartening and if people refuse to talk about these things you know um and also uh put forward the the incredible amount of struggle it is to do this right i think that for me is also the really important thing about actually celebrating and discussing these things i'm not telling someone that um you know a woman a winemaker like emily matumbo who's um, a a belgian congolese winemaker who makes wine in uh, catalonia that she is uh you know of of mixed race and and of belgian congolese origin just because oh that's a fun fact about her um, her race is not a fun fact. The fact that she is a woman of color who is making wine, who has fought through the discrimination that she faces on a regular basis, um, who has to make wine in Spain, you know, uh, to be able to kind of actually find a way to have, have any form of, of credibility kind of in a displaced place from, from her places of origin and who's being sold, you know, in in France, like this is an extraordinary achievement in its own way. And it's not uh, an, an achievement just because of her race, but it's important, I think, to say that like, 
lift these people up, right? Like acknowledge that, you know, they've had to come overcome these things to get to this point. And that, you know, we, we should like, we should see that some, as something that is important. Again, at that point, confront the wine the way you are, you want, you know, taste the wine, you enjoy it, you enjoy it. You know, it's not, it's not actually to say that that aspect has an inherent value for the um, aesthetic pleasure of the wine itself, but it is an important part of the story. It's not um, just branding. It's not just branding. And so, you know, people like I, I, I really, you know, I, I, Emily Matumbo is a perfect example of that. I think someone like um, Isabelle Perrault, uh, who yes. has a domain called Côte de Molière. Yeah. And we've talked about her before. And, and I think, I mean, she's, she's part of, she's had a lot of sort of um, recent sort of mediatization because she has a project called Peyton Pinard. Uh, which is an, an Instagram account, um, but also really a, a, a group in association that is fighting sexual discrimination in the wine industry and really fighting and it head abuse. on and sexual abuse. Exactly. And, you know, she has had to deal with a recent court case uh, in which she was accused of defamation by a winemaker who was accused of uh, sexual abuse um, and sexual harassment by a number of different women in the wine industry. And, um, you know, she, she was trying to just be in a position of reporting about the situation that people are aware of it. Um, and there was a significant effort, uh, not only by the winemaker in question, but by a number of, of people in the natural wine industry to silence her and to say, oh, you know, you're politicizing wine. You know, this isn't what we're making wine for. Oh, this person's a good person. You know what I mean? Oh, these things don't happen. You know, um, oh, it's alcohol. Things happen. And, you know, looping it back again to the ways in which this, this thing that can be a really beautiful thing and can also be a tool of oppression yeah. uh, in, in many different ways. And so we have to be constantly aware of that. Mm -hmm. And I so, was, yeah. I, fun fact, um, I was mm -hmm. at the trial. You were um, at the trial? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, uh, because I was, I was uh, accompanying one of the, uh, one of the witness in the trial um okay. and and someone so afterwards after the the audience uh we someone's it i keep thinking about it that's why i'm bringing it up um one of the men there said something that i think is so important and so interesting and so obvious and yet um um obvious and yet uh powerful to actually say is that like in in this industry there's a lot especially in this in this case and with this this the man that wasn't that that was being accused um there's this idea of yeah but you know he's a he's just a big bear he's just like you know bourru in, in french you know like yeah he's a bit rough around the edges but you know like that's what men are like and men in this industry and all that and and one of the men um who was on on Isabel's side and who who we we hung out with afterwards said 
I'm a big bear in the wine industry. I get drunk more often than I should. And yet I know not to follow women home when they don't want me to. I know how to not harass. And and yeah, like no one's perfect. And yes, probably he said or did, uh, the, the man who was speaking, things that probably was inappropriate were inappropriate and he should know better and but there's a limit that has been crossed over and over again and that's been put on the on the on the back of uh alcohol uh big bear like guys you know how these men are like there is a limit like you do not rape people <laughs> you do not stalk people you do not abuse people just because you're drunk, just because you're a big bear of a man. And and coming from a big bear of a man who works in the wine industry, who was like, they make it sound like that's just how we are, but it's not. This is special. And so I just wanted to, to share that because it's so obvious and yet so rare to hear and easy to forget. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for uh, thank you for 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 bringing bringing her up, uh, Isabel Perro and Peyton Pinard, and and the other women you you mentioned. No, I mean thank you for for accompanying the witness and 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 being there to support these people because I mean it's like we need these these circles of um, of affirmation for the experiences that people go through in these ways. Um, because yeah, again, it's so much of a situation of, well, it was especially around situations involving alcohol, but I mean, this is the case for people who are the, you know, the survivors of sexual assault and abuse forever, right? I mean, the blame is put upon them. Um, and in the aftermath of, uh, you know, or during this conversation around this case, um, you know, there were still people I would hear who would say, well, you know, she probably shouldn't have gotten drunk with him or she probably should have, you know, should have let him know better about the environments where, and again, it is, this has this double effect of saying either you as a woman should just not be present at these things. Like it's just safer for you to like, go, you know what guys, I'm going to go home. Like I don't need to be around. And what sucks is, is that those environments are those often the environments in which professional relationships are concretized. And where your ability to move forward or to potentially, if you are an aspiring winemaker, find out about a new parcel or get, you know, uh, a chance the next day during sobriety to go visit the the cab, things like that. Those are now done. And again, it's like the camaraderie of experiences of alcohol can often unlock actually good positive discussions and, and potentially create um friendship it can be it can be a lubricant towards positive social engagement and transformation um and transformation right and then and i do see that oftentimes you know a certain amount of ivresse, certain amount of inebriation can be a tool of inspiration for people and 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 this it is this this transcendence also of of our kind of terrestrial plane into something a little bit more like an alien you know but it is absolutely never an excuse for violence, for discrimination, for, for, you know, anything that is actually causing another person around you harm. Never. 
period. Preach. I love that. Um, thank you so much for for your work and for for saying that so so explicitly because we don't like we'll never say it enough um and i as we draw to a close um i think that's a great note to it's a, it's a great note to end on but also is kind of heavy um something that i love to ask uh guest is um what is a question you wish people asked you more often? Oh, that's a great question unto itself. Um, you can take, you can take I wish... as long as you, as you want to. And so yeah. to think about let me, it. Let me think just briefly. I mean, I wish, I honestly wish people would, and this is, this is a very simple thing, but I wish people would ask me more often what Rehringa means. Um, it's very funny because in two and a half years that I have been operating the shop, I can count on two hands how many times people have asked me that. In, in the shop, you know, obviously, if I'm having conversations with people like yourself, like we are dealing, diving more deep into it. But just people who come into the shop, remark on it. I've had customers who've never asked me this, you know, and who are regular people. And again, it's, I wish they would ask because in the name of the shop is the, is the key to me of, of everything we're talking about, right? It's, Rodinga is the, it's the flow. It is the continuity. It is our connection between our ancestors, us and the future. And it's the interconnectivity of everything, right? Ridinga in Te Māori is this notion that the turning of a river um, is is its endless cycle, right? That a wat that a river is pulling water from the ocean, and it turns and it returns back to itself, um, and so there's this magical thing that happens in which the water from the ocean is transformed as it takes that, takes that turn and it becomes the water that we drink, the water that our children play in, that, you know, that makes up the, the veins of, of our country. It's, it's the basis. It's how Maori people came to the different parts of Aotearoa through the veins of the rivers and the flow. And they took with them the great story of Hawaii and our people and the great diaspora Polynesians that came in the ocean and brought it into a funnel that took them to the place where they are. And that place flows back. And, and we, as a result, are responsible for everything that's happened before us. And we're responsible for everything that will continue after us. And the pollution that is present in our rivers, what we put into it, is also something that will always be there you know we that what has happened in our past is always present uh now and we have to we have to be aware of it and in taking care of these things it's more than just saying we're taking care of the actuality of what's there now it's not just a question of taking care of the environment as it is today it's taking care of and and acknowledging 
what went into that, what our implication is in that blessure, in that violence, and not only what we can do to change the present, but what we can do to offer some sort of aid to the people connected to the past and create a better space in the future. Um, I think if people just asked me that, it would make the idea of the shop much easier to understand. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for sharing this story and all of the others. Um, this 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 was a beautiful conversation. I don't know. Thank I don't you. know how how you how you feel, but I love it. Um, I feel great. I wish I, I wish I could have these conversations right before I open the shop every day. <laughs> yes. I'm going to leave I'm going to leave this with such a such a wonderful energy to Oh, I'm glad. This was my conversation with Nathan Ratapu of Rurenga Wines. You can find a store in the 10th arrondissement of Paris on 3 Rue de la Fidélité. Go say hi to Nathan, tell him how brilliant he is. Ask him to tell you more about Rirenga and about the concept. Go buy some of his beautiful wine, buy a book, have a conversation, meet people and spread the word. You can find Rirenga Wines and Nathan on Instagram at Rirenga Wines, R-E-R-E-N-G-A-W-I-N-E-S and at Nat Ratapu, N-A-T-R-A-T-A-P-U. You can find me at Lucy Out There, L-U-C-I-E-O-U-T-T-H-E-R-E and on my website www.lucyoutthere.com. Please reach out. Please let me know what you thought. Please let me know if you have any ideas for new guests, people who embody a future that is sustainable, that is kind, and that live the questions. Take care of yourself. Take care of your sanity. Be kind to yourself and to others. And see you in two weeks. Bye.